0: Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning and welcome. Let me say good morning to all of you joining us online for our series where we are walking through the book of Hebrews entitled, Jesus is Greater. We are in week four, and if you're joining us for the first time uh, this morning, either online or here in person, first of all, we are honored that you're with us as we walk through this book uh, for a while. We'll be in it through pretty much the rest of the year until we get back into Christmas time, which we all know will be here before we know it. Uh, But right now, we are in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, whether electronic or hard copy, and you'd like to open and follow along with me, chapter 2, if you open to the middle of your Bible and you uh, find the book of Matthew, go towards the right, and you'll find 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the the little book of Philemon, and then the book of Hebrews. And again, if you go to James, you've gone one book too far. Just flip back. So as you're turning there, repeated a number of times in Hebrews chapter 1, the theme that Jesus is greater is very clear, which is one of the reasons why we named this series Jesus is Greater. That's the author's way of kind of driving home the point that there's nowhere we can go better than Jesus. We just sang about the power of his name, how we want to speak Jesus in every area and aspect of our life. It's one of the reasons why we're in a a capital campaign to complete the work that God wants to do here on our campus to see every person here and know about Christ. So no matter what it is that we're tempted to trust in, Jesus is greater. Amen. And the way the author is celebrating that, Jesus' all-sufficiency and supremacy is reminding us that he is greater. He's saying to us over and over, Jesus is enough. And not just that he's enough, but he's more than enough. There's nowhere else apart from Jesus that you can go and get better or get enough. Only Jesus can satisfy. His grace is sufficient for all of us, every single one of us. So last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we saw really what we considered the first kind of commandment or challenge, imperative of the book of Hebrews. And the challenge was for us to take the gospel seriously. And part of the way that the author in those four verses pressed home that point that we need to take the gospel seriously is to point to us, point out to us, the importance of Jesus' message, the gospel. The importance of knowing the consequences if we ignore Christ's message, drifting away as he described it. And that theme continues in our text today. He's going to press really into us, I think, this morning. And we have a lot to cover, by the way. He's going to press into our hearts to this message to take the gospel seriously by pointing us to who it is that we're dealing with, which is Jesus and who is he. As we've seen in chapter 1, he's exalted above all. He's exalted above the angels. And the dominion of the world has been put at his hands and into his hands. And one thing to know, and this is what we're going to see throughout this study of Hebrews, is that the author is going to move us from comfort to challenge, you can say. He's going to move us back and forth where he's going to comfort us, and then he's going to challenge us. We've seen the comfort in chapter 1 as he talked again about the supremacy of Christ, which is to be our anchor. It's where we set our anchor, right? He's to be our anchor. And then in what we studied last week in chapter 2, we were challenged. We were presented with the challenge to not drift away, to not allow our anchors to kind of drift away. And he says, how would we escape? Or how, if we neglected this great salvation, where would the escape be, right? So it was a challenge. It was... For us to, as he comforts us he challenges us and now we're back to hopefully being comforted by Jesus work and his ultimate eternity so again Hebrews chapter 2 and let's keep going verses 5 through 13 this morning for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking verse 6 it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone verse 10 for it was fitting that that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. And you'll probably hear this throughout our study together, that we could probably spend the rest of our lives just on a few of those verses studying, thinking, meditating. Well, we'll, this is one of those sections where I'm going to use that, that we could spend the rest of our time here on earth probably in this passage or even just on a couple of these verses because they're so rich with truth and transformational in our lives. And so I'm going to do the very best that God has given us This morning to work through this together my hope though is that it stirs within us and one of the reasons why we like teaching through Scripture is not necessarily to give you everything to exhaust the understanding of every single thing because we certainly couldn't do that but but more to the fact of giving us enough to create and stir the hunger even more so that when you go from here And your home or wherever you may go that you meditate, you think on, you study on. The greatest win for a communicator of God's word is not you leaving and thinking about the communicator. The greatest win is you leaving and thinking about Jesus and his word. And the stirring that he has caused in you. And so again, these verses are, are much. Now here's the spoiler alert. This text, as we've just said, talks about Christ's superiority to the angels and our responsibility to embrace him and his gospel. And our, both are stressed here. God has subjected the world to come to Jesus. He rules over everything. Everything has been made subject to him according to the author of Hebrews. And this is particularly made in connection with Christ's incarnation, which again is what we celebrate as Christians at Christmas. The incarnation that Jesus put on flesh. His taking on human nature. His becoming flesh and blood on our behalf and also suffering in death. Now, I want us to look at verses 6 through 8 in our text to begin with. We're going to bounce around for just a minute. 6 through 8 is a quote from Psalm 8. And if you were to turn back to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament and look at Psalm 8... And look at the context of Psalm 8. You would see Psalm 8, which is David's one. King David's psalm is celebrating the fact that though the Lord has made heaven and earth and especially the stars and the heavenly world and all those things, though man is small in comparison to this huge world that God has made, nevertheless, it is, he has made man the crown of creation. If we did not believe in God and we looked at this mass creation... If you've ever, ever had the opportunity, or privilege to travel around the world, even within our own country, even go out west, uh, which I would encourage, if you have that opportunity and the means to do that, the chance to see God's creation in, in this in this way is humbling. But, but if we didn't believe in God and we looked at this massive creation, I think the only correct conclusion that we could draw from this creation around us in its majesty and its grandeur, it's, it's huge, right, around us is that we're small. We're insignificant in the scope of things. If you've ever just kind of looked up at the stars on a clear night and just seen the, the galaxies and the stars and, the, and thought about the sun or just the planets that we study about, All those things, we seem very small and insignificant in comparison, right? Maybe you felt that. Maybe you've experienced or had a moment like that. When you look at Genesis 1, it's interesting that the biggest things in creation, the biggest things in creation that you and I know are talked about the least. The sun, the moon, the stars, the billions of stars that are out there. They're given one sentence. An entire half chapter is given to the creation of man. Let that sink in. What is the message that God is sending there? He's saying, though I've made these massive things in my creation, you, you are the crown of my creation. You are the thing that I love the most and I care about the most. And that is an incredibly important message for us. Hear that. Listen to God speak that. It's not to produce pride. It's to produce humility. And to know that the creator of all things, and take a minute, we're on this globe that's spinning at a really fast pace. We have moon and stars. We have the ocean. Just go and just look at the vastness of our ocean. And to know that the crowning glory is... Us. That's humili- that, that humbles. One commentator said, We cannot sustain meaningful life in this world thinking that we are simply a tiny cog in a gigantic wheel that doesn't even know of your existence. And, and so, Psalm 8 is celebrating the fact that we, of what we have learned from Genesis 1, that though God has made incredibly beautiful and powerful things in creation, nevertheless, man is the crown of his creation. So the author of Hebrews does something really interesting with this passage. As he quotes Psalm 8, he doesn't apply it in the first instance to man in general, which is what Psalm 8 was written for, to us about man, right? He applies it to Jesus. And when you read it, again, if you read verses 6 through 8 in Hebrews 2, and it reads differently when you apply it to Jesus, and I would encourage you to do that. Which is why I gave you the spoiler at the beginning, right after we read our text, that this is about Christ. Now, I want to jump back to verse 5. I told you we're going to kind of bounce here. Let's back up for a minute and read verse 5 again with that understanding. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The author of Hebrews stresses that That in spite of the dignified status of angels, that's not to say that they're not dignified in God's creation, the world to come has not been subjected to them. But God has subjected the world to come to the Son of Man, He has put all things under His subjection, under His feet. And the phrase, world to come. It, it, and commentators and scholars are, are back and forth with this. They, they, they all kind of agree that it could either be the present reality or the future culmination of God's work or both. But this is what they agree on. And it clearly reminds all of us of, which, uh, of the new order which Christ came to set up is under his control. God has put him in charge of it. He reigns from the right hand. And the author stresses that this world to come is not subjected to the angels and this continues to show what christ's superiority his supremacy he's exalted he's exalted in a position that is never promised or given to the angels now when you look at psalm 8 again applying to man in general reminded of several important lessons reminded that in light of the glories of the created order which may might make us seem insignificant, God's crowned us again with glory and honor, has made us to rule. He's put everything under man's feet. And so man's status at his original creation was both glory and rule. Maybe we've forgotten that. Mainly because we lost that. We lost that. God's design was to give human beings dominion over all creation. This is what we read in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and then into chapter 3 of Genesis talks about and leads us to the rebellion that we find with Adam and Eve. They rebelled. They turned their back on the mandate God had given them to exercise dominion over all things and subdue. And we, in turn, have distorted this responsibility and have either abandoned what God has called us to do or have abused it for our own simple purposes. This, again, we lost in the fall. And our nature itself and our work was compromised. And so, therefore... We do not reign over the world as God originally intended for us to do. And maybe that's just a history lesson, a reminder, refresher lesson, because you already get all that. But that makes the application of this passage all the more appropriate to Christ, to Jesus' work, because he came to do what we did not do. He came to undo what we had done, which makes it all more powerful and all the more special for us. And so all these things that were originally intended for us, but lost by us in the fall, Jesus comes to restore and he fulfills them perfectly. So there's a double meaning. You could say there's a double reference to Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6. On the one hand, it is originally applies to man, to us in general. But the author of Hebrews points out that it was only fulfilled in Christ. He's trying to connect these pieces of Scripture and the understanding of Scripture, which I certainly appreciate, which we as students of Scripture should appreciate as he brings these things together so that we understand them, so that it illuminates in our heart and our mind and in our lives, so that we see Jesus rightly. We cannot experience the glory spoken of in Psalm 8 apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where he's leading us. Everything given to the first Adam, Genesis 1 Adam, is compromised by his fall, by his sin. It's restored, though, for everyone who has a saving relationship with the second Adam, who is Jesus. And so everyone who trusts in Jesus receives the restoration of holiness and responsibility, glory, and rule. Let's look back. Look back at verse 8 and 9 again. Putting everything in subjection under his feet, now and putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. By the way, this is the first time the author gives us the name Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, the Bible never asks us to pretend that things are better than they really are. There are are teachers and people out there who, who claim that we should always think that things are better than they really are. The Bible never does that. It never asks us to ignore pain. It never asks us to put on a fake smile. It never asks us to, to not experience or express the frustration or the confusion or the deep hurt that we're experiencing or going through or that we have in our life. Jesus expressed that as you study his life in the Gospels. It is not a lack of faith to be realistic about our circumstances and suffering, okay? That is not a lack of faith. We can be positive and we can be grateful and we can be glad for all that we have and at the same time, we can be honest and real and genuine about what we're facing in life. The scriptures encourage us to be grateful for all that we have. And they also encourage us to patiently endure pain. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to pretend it's not there to patiently endure pain and heartache. Why? Because God has promised us and he's assured us That in the end, Jesus will reign victorious. And all evil will be overcome. And truth will be vindicated. And an enemy will be placed under his feet. And all confusion will give way to understanding and joy. Praise God. And we see this expressed in verse 8. The second half. Biblical realism, you could say. Right? We are promised here that one day... And for all eternity, because of what Jesus has done, we will no longer be subjected to the ravages of nature. Let that kind of sink in. Nature instead will be subjected to us is what we've already studied, right? That was from the beginning. And Jesus is restoring that. Now, for now, though, we live at a time where verse 8, the second half, is still true. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Him being us, that's still in the reference to you and I. So in other words, at present, our family, our friends, you, yourself, are suffering and you experience suffering and and through brokenness and in and through brokenness or heartache or pain or loss or betrayal, all the things the fallen world has to bring that upon us. And we want answers, right? We want answers. More than that, we want healing. It's what we pray for. It's what we ask for. We want deliverance. We want justice. And sometimes God in his mercy and kindness provides that for us. But not always. Not everything has yet been put in subjection to us. And in those moments, one writer says, we like to think that we are the masters of our own fate and in and final control of all that happens, which who knows that's not true. <laughs> Amen? Just seeing if you're still with me. There is a lot in creation over which we appear to exert dominion. But here's the problem. Here's the big problem. We have not conquered death. We have not conquered death. It continues to exert its authority over us. And, and we want things to change. and we wonder if God is even worthy of our trust, if they don't. But again, to A B. Chapter 2, verse 8b doesn't say that although we do not yet see everything in subjection to our will and desires, that we should just wait a couple years and it will all turn around for good. It's not what it says. The Word of God doesn't say that if we would just have enough faith or avoid negative words that everything would turn out in our favor. It's not what it says. The unavoidable fact is that nothing ultimately is subjected to us because in only a matter of a few years it will be taken away. In Psalm 8, David says that man has a glorious future as the ruler of all creation. That was part of Genesis 1. We know those things connect. This is part of our great salvation. And again, that is not to produce pride. That's to produce humility. But the reality is we're not conquerors now. But listen, Jesus is. Jesus is. Did you hear that? Did you receive that? Jesus is. Do you see that in verse 9? You get to the end of verse 8, and then you get to verse 9, and you have, but we see him. Who's him? He just named him, namely Jesus, so we're not confused. But we see him. When we look around at our world and are realistic about life and death, we are forced to admit we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. So what do we see? We see Jesus. Jesus. We see Jesus sitting and reigning at the right hand of majesty on high, right? We see him who, because he suffered a death that he didn't deserve, he has showered us with God's glorious grace, which we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. That's grace. We didn't merit it. In other words, we don't at present see eight fulfilled in ourselves yet. But what we do see is eight fulfilled in who? Jesus. And that friend says the author is the key to life that is the key to life the solution to our struggles and the way we survive our circumstances isn't by by looking to Jesus in faith and hope that our ultimate destiny is fulfilled in him we're still subject to death and all kinds of weakness and futility so we look to him it is by looking to him right But Jesus has passed through the weakness and he's passed through death and he's crowned with glory and honor. He's seated at power, in power at the right hand of God and all his enemies are subjected to him as a footstool for his feet. It said that in chapter 1, verse 13. And what does that do for us? And here's a life-changing piece because it should bring great joy. It should bring a great joy to us. But it is a joy that does not close its eyes on the reality of life. It is a joy that doesn't close its eyes on the reality of life and its frustrations and fears and pain and heartache. When life throws the very worst at us, when nothing seems to make sense because everything we plan falls to pieces, when all our efforts to do good and godly things appear to bring only disillusionment and loss, what do we do? We see Him. We see Jesus. We fix our eyes of our faith on Him. We invest our hope on who He is and what He has accomplished. You keep your focus on Him. For God is slowly but surely bringing all things under His sovereign rule, and that is where our hope must rest. That's life-changing. That's transforming. Let's look at the last part of our text, verses 10 to 13. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing Many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Here's a few observations. Starting in verse 10. It's telling us that, one, that the one for whom and by whom all things are is the one who is at work in Jesus' suffering and ours. All right, so verse 10, look at the beginning again. For whom and by whom all things exist. Just take that phrase. That is teaching us. The author is saying to us, this is who is at work in Jesus' suffering. This is who is at work in our suffering. And that means our suffering now has meaning, which is, which is big. For us right in apologetics this truth is pointed out think about this without God the cruelest things that happen in this world are simply something else that happens it's just something else that happened if if there is no one from whom and by whom and for whom all things exist that everything happens that happens in this life from the most obscene and cruel and horrific and horrible things are just something else that happened. If this universe has no creator from whom and by whom and for whom all things exist, then there is no one for whom all things exist. And if that's true, there is no purpose for which it exists. It's kind of a tongue twister, right? It's kind of like a riddle. If there is no one God from whom and by whom and for whom all things exist, there can be no ultimate meaning in this world for the believer in Jesus because there is one for whom and by whom all things exist as we just read in the text. And the believer knows that. And because that one for whom and by whom and all things exist is at work in Jesus' suffering, listen, we may be confident that he is also at work in ours. And we may be assured that nothing we endure no matter what it is no matter what you go through from the darkest of valleys nothing we endure is wasted is unpurposeful is meaningless because everything matters to him did you just did you get that for whom and by whom the word all all it's a little word but it has significance nothing is wasted The smallest things that we're undergoing in our life is a matter of concern to him, to the greatest things that we go through in life is a matter of concern to him. He is concerned about every part of his people's trials. And it's all part of a grand design because he is the one for whom all things exist. And his purpose in that is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And the word translated there, bringing, means to lead. It's kind of this echo of the Old Testament. The experience of Israel, God's people being, you know, led out of Egypt in the book of Exodus where you read that story. And so the, the author of Hebrews is using it here to describe God's action of leading his people out of the slavery of sin, the bondage to darkness. So you can say what God has accomplished in Jesus is like, is like a new exodus. And he calls Jesus our founder. Our founder is Jesus and only Jesus. Some translations, you may have one that says pioneer or trailblazer or champion or captain. But what is most important is that we understand understand that this is only said of Jesus and no one else. Not the angels, not any of the other people you read about in Scripture, not any of us. This is only said of Jesus. He has gone before us. And he leads us into that glory, which is to come. And what does God to do? He perfects him through suffering. And we go, what in the world does that mean? I thought we've just talked about Jesus is greater, right? How? It's not saying that he's imperfect and he becomes perfect, right? Jesus is greater than everything and anything. So how do you perfect perfection? Commentators and scholars have different takes on this. But the one I think makes the most sense is that this point... That's being driven home for those of us who are suffering is that he is the perfect savior for you in your suffering because he himself has been perfected in suffering when god comes to our rescue and our suffering he's not going to say from kind of like from the outside and he goes hey i know you're suffering i'm going to help you with my power there i helped you it's not what it, it's not what he does the way He has rescued us in our suffering is to come inside that suffering and he's done that through his son through Jesus I mean maybe you've experienced this in your life where you're in a position in a place of suffering you you're dealing with some stuff and you're it's hurtful it's it's painful and you have loving family and friends who come up and come beside you and they're trying their best to comfort you and, and, and we understand and we know and hopefully you do that they're doing the very best but one of the things they may say to you is I know, I know what you're going through is hard and as much as you respect what they say and how they say it and with the kindness and the gentleness and you appreciate the words in your mind you're thinking you have no idea because you haven't gone through it the author's a the author of hebrews is saying you and i can never say that to jesus we can say it to one another but we can never say that to jesus jesus could say that to us but we can never say that to jesus because when we begin to look up to god and cry out to him for help in the middle of that suffering jesus isn't out there just somewhere He's with us, he's right next to us, he's in it. Even in our suffering, he's won that victory. It's what the captain of our salvation has done. It's why he's made perfect in suffering, the perfect got perfecter. I'll say that. <laughs> and lastly, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Praise God. The author affirms this profound and deeply intimate solidarity that Jesus has with his people, with his disciples, with us. Listen to me. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Did you hear that? all you can hear are the voices of condemnation coming from Satan and even from people you know turn your eyes and ears toward Jesus is not ashamed of you look at verse 11 Jesus is not ashamed to call you his spiritual brother and his spiritual sister he's not embarrassed by you he's gloriously happy to tell everyone he and she they're in my family He's my brother, she's my sister, we are together in one. I'm proud to declare to everyone that these Christian men and women are the ones the Father has given to me. They are mine and I love them. Praise God. And that is the invitation, if you don't know that about Jesus, to come home. That he loves you. So if you still think Jesus is ashamed of you because of how you look or talk or the things that you do or the things that you wish you would do that you don't do or the things that you do that you wish you wouldn't do or because you continue to fail, if you think Jesus is ashamed and embarrassed because of the silly things you may say or because you think you've never accomplished anything that that amounts to anything of value, think again, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Pause for a moment. Ask yourself this one question. How much could I actually accomplish by the grace of God if I really believe Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother and sister? We've established Jesus is superior to all things and all people. There is no other. And he's the one who's speaking that worth into your life, that value into your life. I'm not ashamed of you. Imagine what we could accomplish for the kingdom How often would we testify and proclaim, fulfill Romans 1 where Paul says we should be unashamed of the gospel? How often would that happen if we really believe that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, his brother and sister? What would I be inclined and empowered to do in his church if I believe that Jesus is not ashamed of me? Think about it. And then thank God because it's true. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you. Thank you. That phrase doesn't seem to do it justice. How grateful, how overwhelmingly grateful we are, and we are to be. God thank you that in the midst of our suffering we are not alone, that Jesus understands. Even when everybody around us doesn't, Jesus does. Thank you that he has brought us into that glory and that invitation for others to come into that same glory and experience his presence is before them. God, I pray if there are those watching online or in this room that haven't responded to his invitation to believe in him, to trust in him and not themselves, there was work that needed to be done to get to heaven, not our work, his work. And that work is finished, God, I pray that they see that work was done for them. That when they see the cross in their mind, when they see the empty tomb in their mind, when they understand that Jesus came and did what we couldn't do, died the death that we deserved, conquered it in his power and his glory to his praise. And he offers that victory to us only in him. That salvation is yours, that God, that you would draw people to respond to that invitation by your Holy Spirit may today to be the day that their lives forever be eternally changed by believing in Christ repenting of sin trusting in Jesus God thank you thank you that one day we're going to rule that the things of this world that bond us and chain us and break us and hold us down would be no longer. Thank you that we have that future in front of us, that you're restoring what you originally set in place. And it's only done by your son and our savior, Jesus. Thank you. And God, until that day, may we see him. May we see him. And we look up and fix our eyes and see him because he's in control. He's in control of all things. We pray this in his name. Amen.